Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, my friends. We got a huge show for you today. Our guest is the legendary Professor Eugene Fama a 2013 Nobel laureate and widely recognized as the father of modern finance. Today's episode, we talked to Professor Fama about whether he thinks the Fed can control inflation, where the phrase efficient markets even came from, and his take on the global market portfolio. As we wind down, we hear the last time he bought an individual stock. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode of the legend himself, Professor Eugene Fama. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. I am so excited to have you today. There's so many questions I have. I even prompted a bunch of former podcast guests who are former students of yours to give me some really hard, probing, difficult questions. So I have a long laundry list. (laughs) And I'm not going to tell you which the students asked which ones, but they gave me some good ones. First off, I feel like we got to start. You've written over 100 papers. What are you up to now? Do you know? I don't count number of papers. I count the number of citations to my papers. I like it. So let's just say a lot. And I've read many of them. I don't think all of them. But there's one paper that I thought we had start with because we're recording this October 12th, 2022. And tomorrow's CPI day. So all the market participants are focused on that. But you had a fun paper that I think is pretty anti-consensus view, as many of yours are. <laughs> but it was talking about inflation and the Fed. You want to talk to us a little bit about this because it was, uh, I got some great quotes, but it was talking about inflation, which is something most people haven't had anything to do with for the majority of my career. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on those two and kind of what your paper was talking about. Well, I think the world focuses too much on the Fed and their power over inflation. And my view is they don't really have that much power uh, over inflation. And now, especially, for the past so 15 years or so, they've been in this quantitative easing game, which is an entirely new experience. 
So they, they, I don't think they really know how you will go about controlling inflation in that with that set of policy uh, tools that they've been using. So they, they're trying now, but I think it's an experiment, and we'll see how it turns out. I've been waiting for this experiment because as soon as they started doing quarantine easing, I said to myself, what are they going to do when inflation comes along? So now we're going to find out. They're raising the federal funds rate. That's the policy response, but I'm not sure that's going to work. So we do a lot of polls on Twitter because I like to kind of gauge the sentiment, what people are thinking. And I think the broad expectation is very much that inflation is under control and coming back down. Let's say the Fed calls you tomorrow. They say, Gene, we listened to you on this great podcast. We're here to listen. What would you have us do? What what would be your suggestions? That's why I say it's an experiment because I I don't really know. So you get inflation running at 8 plus percent. You've got the uh, federal funds rate running around four now. I guess maybe they raise it a little bit more. But that's still minus three real or minus four real. So they're nowhere near where they may have to be in order to turn that thing up. And we're not sure it will work anyway. So that's why we're going to see. I I don't know. I would not know what's the answer uh, to that because I think this quantitative easing regime has changed all the rules of the game. So you don't know what's going to work. What's your general take on kind of the role of the Fed in general then? Is it something we should say, you know what, we can reduce the headcount over here down to like five people. I, I have a theory. Let's see if you like my theory, Gene, or you can you can bust some holes in it. I think the Fed should just show up at their meetings, get a six pack of beer, watch Seinfeld, and just peg the Fed funds rate to the two year or something similar, and then just go on their day. Now, I, I said they can't tell anyone they're doing that because then it involves all sorts of different signaling. But let's like maybe that's what they should actually do. Terrible idea, good idea. It's kind of similar to Milton Friedman's idea. Milton's idea was let them let them raise the money supply by some small number every month and not do anything else. And if the rate of growth of the money supply is in line with the rate of growth of the economy, inflation will take care of itself. That was Milton's idea. So yours is kind of a in a similar simplistic vein. I think his was probably good advice. But of course, you get policymakers in there and they want to do something powerful. <laughs> well, you got to have this perception of activity, right? If they just did that and they weren't doing anything, and this there's a lot of parallels to buy and hold investing, right? Where people need to look like they're doing something during a crisis. Otherwise, what's what's their job description for? <laughs> what, are, what are they doing? We'll post a show note listeners to the paper because it's a lot of fun, but there's some killer quotes in there, one of which was, the Fed losing control price level doesn't mean high inflation. It just means inflation is what it is. That is out of Fed control. I read the Fed is quietly acknowledging this cost of QE and statements about inflation for the last few years amounted to keeping an eye on it, which is not the same as controlling it. Who doesn't keep an eye on it? I thought that's such a great quote. Well, this has been a year so far for the history books, looking at a traditional 60-40 portfolio, certainly on a real basis, one of the worst ever in the past 100 years. I had a question, and, and as a historian, a longtime market participant, do you have any insight as to the origin of the 60-40? Why has this become so ensconced in finance, this like 60% stocks, 40% bonds? Why wasn't it 50-50? Was this a a Markowitz thing? Was this a, a Fama thing? No, it wasn't. So I, I, I'm not a particular fan of that. What I would say is most investors should just hold a market portfolio. A true market portfolio would have the market proportions of stocks and, and bonds. But then you can deviate from that depending on your attitude towards risk. 
So you may want more stocks, or you may want more bonds. If, you, if, you're, more, if you're less risky, you should go more stocks. More risky, you should go more more bonds. If you're really risky, you should go short-term bonds. You know, the risk aversion is an important player, even if you're a passive investor. I'm always like curious where the actual the number 60 came from. If it was like some paper, some consultant somewhere, and it just kind of like used that number and then forever it was. A part of- I can tell you it was, it was there when, it, when I came into the game and that's more than 60 years ago. So. Well, there's a, there's a similar question I had for you that was kind of fun as I was reading, you know, you've, you've become synonymous with the phrase efficient markets, but you said in one of your pieces that you didn't cite that phrase in your thesis, like it came in a later paper. What was the inspiration for that? Do you remember? The first re- real appearance of it was in a little a special little paper that the business school where I work it has a series of these little papers that they take from the faculty. And I used it there, and I don't remember why, but it stuck. It's funny. You go back to like that little tiny decision, and then like if you could tell that young guy now, say you're, this phrase <laughs> that you didn't even think about, but you just typed in is now going to be everywhere. It's funny to look back on that. One of the things is I was thinking about various topics and what's going on in the world. And then there was that very brief period where in many places, including sovereigns, interest rates went negative. As a professor, was that a pretty weird period? It was pretty weird. People thought before that that, you know, you always had the alternative of just taking the cash and putting it in a closet. And then the interest rate would be zero. You couldn't go below zero. So they thought zero was the lower bound. And it turned out, no, it, storing cash has costs to it. So it can, in fact, go negative interest rate. So as we think about inflation for investors, I think many that are kind of struggling with how to think about, okay, well, stocks, bonds haven't been a good place to hide so far this year with inflation. Is there any general thoughts you have on how to think about living in a, in a higher inflationary world for most people that just haven't experienced it, or whether that's personal finance or, or investment related? Are there any general constructs or frameworks you think about? Well, so inflation tends to be slow moving. When, when it's high, it tends to stay high for a, a while. When it's low, it tends to stay low. Historically, short-term bonds were a good hedge against inflation. Interest rates moved with pretty much with inflation. I wrote several papers about that back in the 70s and in, in the 80s. But for the past, uh, whatever, 10 years or so, you know, that's, that's not worked because interest rates went down so low that uh, they couldn't adjust very much to inflation at the level they were. So an inflation hedge wouldn't have been a, a, a good idea available. But at that time, inflation was not very uncertain. So we weren't really concerned that much. I'm, I'm kind of a market portfolio person. Basically, you have to talk yourself out of the market portfolio. You talk yourself out of either towards higher risk, less bonds, uh, or lower risk, small bonds. We actually talk a lot about the global market portfolio over the years. And I feel like there's been an increasing amount of investment research on what that's looked like and how to estimate it. I mean, there's certainly some private assets that don't get included that's, that are a little harder like farmland. Uh, we come from a, from a farming background, but it's surprising to me that you haven't seen, there's some that, that are close and approximated, but you haven't seen more just one simple global market portfolio offerings, funds. You got any insight as to why? A global market portfolio is uh, kind of a risky venture because the problem is that countries go to war uh, with one another. We thought we were past that, but now we're finding out we aren't. And wartime is subject to expropriation risk. 
So in other words, each side expropriates the investors of the other side, and they never get made whole after that. Everybody forgets about investors. So that's the fundamental risk of, in my view, the fundamental risk of international uh, investing is that you, you get expropriated by the, uh, the other side. Those numbers never appear in the historical data. They're just not there. So that risk is just uh, put aside, like it isn't there, but it is. So I would think that for some reasons, you may just want to hold the U.S. market portfolio. Now, the volatility of the U.S. market portfolio of stocks is very similar to the volatility of the international market portfolio of stocks. So there's not much of a diversification effect that's lost by doing that. I think that's that's a reasonable strategy. If you're not, not concerned about the expropriation risk, you might go into uh, an international portfolio that held, you know, Western European uh, you know, common market countries. But even within the common market, there have been periods in the past 20 years when countries wouldn't let foreigners take their money out because they were having uh, local problems. So that's that's always a, a risk of uh, this investing that never shows up in the, in the actual numbers. Well, I, I think it's particularly a front of mind risk this year. I think it was like 95% of all emerging market funds held Russian securities, which are currently somewhere frozen in purgatory. Maybe they're worth something, maybe they're not, but the funds have all written them down. But for the most part, Russia was is small. The concern many investors, it seems like today, where this really is front of mind is, is becomes, you know, China, which is not an insignificant percentage of the global market portfolio, if you include foreign securities, perhaps one of the reasons why the Chinese stock market valuations have cratered over the past couple of years. But as someone on my side who uh, is a big proponent of global investing, I think your points are very real for uh, consideration on what to think about in this world. I, sadly, you know, I, I was hoping we're kind of moving away from this <laughs> at some point, but wars, wars seem to be a feature of uh, uh, us humans. Political risk is important, you know, you have to really take it into account. I mean, you have to really be aware of it. Because you, you get you get one guy like Putin who runs a whole country. So it all depends on what he does or what the people right around him uh, allow, allow him to do. So you have to be very wary of that. I think. As I was kind of asking some friends for questions, I had a thought. And you may not like this conclusion. You may or may not. We'll see. A few years ago, I was tweeting. I said, I wonder who has generated the most progeny slash assets as like a, a parent of the the family tree. I said, you know, there's a lot of Julian Robertson's Tiger Disciples, George Soros's uh, Rubens Treasury Desk. But then I was like, you know, Professor Fama, students over the years have to have a pretty close claim to that. I can think of two that probably add up to over a trillion. What do, what do you think is the AUM on your former students now managing assets in the in the world? You got a guess? Depends on what you call former students. So would you take all the passive investing and include that as a success of efficient markets? Because then you get a really big number. You get a really big number. And so the, the challenge, though, is that, as we said, if we aggregate all the active managers you spawned, do you see that as a, <laughs> is, it, uh, is, that a, is that a positive thing? Is that a slight failure? We're like, you know what? I wish Cliff was doing something more useful for the world than active management. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cliff, Cliff's pretty passive, actually. He, he, he varies the very aggregate ways. They're not, they're not picking stocks, I don't think. But... If I just consider the people who were direct students of mine, 
It's, it's probably in the trillions. Yeah, that's a lot. One of the things, I'm just going to kind of pepper you with some various questions or thoughts that I've never seen you write about, and we'll see if you have an opinion on, is the concept in either academic or practitioner of uh, trend following. So I've seen you comment on momentum and stocks, you know, the factor-based model, but but kind of this traditional commodity trading advisor trend following approach that has been around, I guess, since the 70s and 80s. Is that something you've ever thought about? You think it's interesting, not too interesting? Well, I, I mean, that's lots of the early testing of market efficiency was directly concerned with trend following and related things actually work. And nobody can ever find uh, find evidence that, that they do. Uh, so I, that, that's been a dead issue for research and finance for a long, long time. Nobody, nobody does that anymore. Well, it's, you know, it's for many styles, whether um, it's value investing or managed futures or U.S. versus foreign, a lot of these go through periods of outperformance and underperformance. That's with 2020 hindsight. A hundred percent. Or you could say 2022 hindsight with this year, the way it's going. But, you know, one of the things I spend an enormous amount of time on, you know, I'm a quantitative investor, is the challenge of not mucking things up. To me, this isn't just a retail. This is institutions too, whether it's chasing performance, whether it's following whatever the hot theme of the day is. What do you think is any just best practices or good advice? Now go back to where we started. You, you start with the market portfolio and then you tuck yourself out of it. But you better have a good reason to tuck yourself out of it because it's very difficult to historically to beat the market portfolio. See, you better have a really good, good story. It better not be, uh, you know, cryptocurrency or something like that. That's got a big potential downside to it. So you really have to talk yourself out of the market portfolio. I asked a fellow Nobel professor Sharp months ago, I said, do you think crypto has a role in the global market portfolio? And he kind of smiled and nodded and he said, yes, it does. Unfortunately, it's not a positive one. <laughs> so I said... Um, that was a thoughtful way of uh, conveying your opinion. But as it's come down, I think it's what probably if the global market portfolio like two hundred trillion somewhere around there. I don't know. This is the way to think about it. If, if it doesn't have a value, some use, its value depends on other people thinking that it has value, and that's going to bust eventually. So why isn't it useful? So take uh, Bitcoin for example. You might use it to execute transactions, but the problem is monetary theory historically says. Something with a variable real value isn't good as a medium of exchange. Because, for example, if, I, if I'm a business and I take Bitcoin in payment for my goods, that can put me out of business in itself because this potential downside is so, so big. The variance is so big, it could kill me. So I don't want to transact in that. If I do take it, I'm going to get rid of it as fast as I can. So it isn't, it isn't a really useful medium of exchange. It means, in the end, not going to have any value. People are not going to not going to use it. Maybe some banana country is going to think that Bitcoin is less variable than its own local currency. Okay, maybe it'll work there. But what's happened historically in places like that is they dollarize. They start doing transactions in in dollars, not actually settling in dollars, but just quoting prices in, in, in dollars. Uh, so I don't I don't see a big future in cryptocurrencies. One of the things I was thinking about that we wrote a piece about a while back that's coming kind of the forefront this year is, let's say you're an investor or just a 
person or even an institution and you say, you know what, my goal is not to maximize compounding returns at this point, but it's like, what is the safest portfolio or asset? And we were kind of talking about, you know, I think the assumption for most is probably T-bills, right? Is, it like, is that, would you agree with that? Or do you think there's something safer? There are indexed U.S. bonds if you want to really get something safe in real term. But the problem is that the real rate is fixed on those. So you have uncertainty about the real rate that builds into it. But, but for low variance, it's had to beat that. It's had to beat short treasury bills as well. We kind of looked at on an after-inflation basis. So we said, okay, if we look at it, real returns, but also, so not just the returns, but the max drawdown, the volatility, but like the the worst 12 months. One of the interesting things is if you did the, say, the global market portfolio, which, you know, we kind of modeled as roughly just half stocks and bonds. We did it global. And, and when we did bonds, we said, you know, using 10-year and other things. But you put that portfolio together and mix it with cash, you can kind of come up with some really interesting low volatility, low drawdown, but higher yield outcomes, at least historically. The problem with that, I think the global market portfolio plus cash on paper looks safer, but I I don't know if you could count on it the same way you could count on a pure T-bills. Any thoughts on, could you construct a safer alternative to T-bills mixing in the global market portfolio on a real basis? (laughs) The, the risk of stocks is so much higher than the risk of short-term bonds that it's not, it's not even a relevant comparison. Yeah. The challenge is like, it's, it's looking at the historical on one thing, but then like having the common sense to say, okay, like in the future, like you could see how the risky component could be problematic, but we'll send these our research and you can, you can uh, tear it up and throw it in the fireplace, but we'll see what, uh, <laughs> we'll see what you have to say. Keep in mind that there are these these events that I wrote my PhD thesis on, these bad historical dates when the market goes down 10 or 15%. So these stop loss orders don't work. I don't know. You just can't stop your media losses. So I don't think there's any way you can mix stocks with builds and, and do better in terms of risk as well. It's just holding builds alone. One of your famous phrases, though, if it's in the data, you'll change your mind. Right. What, what have you changed your mind on over the years, uh, Gene, recently? So last couple of years, anything where you're like, hmm, I got a new perspective on something. Anything come to mind? I tend to forget those things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they contradict my wrong beliefs. I know that it's like having uh, hundreds of children at this point, these papers you've written, but some of them get more attention than others. Are there any topics or papers that you think really never got the reception or attention that they deserve, where you look at it and say, man, I thought this was brilliant. I love this topic. No one else cares, but it's something that's near and dear to my heart. Is there any subjects that are uh, in that fold for you? I'll agree with your initial statement, which is that at the time of writing these papers, I would have been a terrible predictor of which ones are going to be the most successful. If you go to a Google site and look at uh, citations to the papers, my top three or four papers would not, I would not have predicted that those would have been the top papers. And there are some that got very few citations that I would thought would have been a lot better. So, and you can't go by the way people react to them at the time. It depends on how people, you know, look at them through time and which ones survive and which ones don't, don't survive. It's totally unpredictable. Yeah. That's been my experience. We had one paper that I love that was kind of talking about the tax inefficiency of dividends. And I think 
we cited you in this paper. You had a, a paper that was something along the lines of like, where have all the dividends gone or disappearing dividends, I think. Uh, I love that paper. But I read, wrote a paper, but kind of like, hey, you know, as a taxable investor, you should consider perhaps you don't necessarily want these really high dividend stocks because you got to pay taxes on them if that's what you care about and on the after-tax return. But as a product developer, I don't think there's anything more marketable in the world than trying to say, hey, we're going to launch a no-dividend fund. I mean, I think that'd be an audience of like four people, perhaps, or or low-dividend low fund would be tough, but I don't know. Oh, it would be fun for the market portfolio. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's been a topic that's been very trendy over uh, probably the last decade, as many asset management marketings and narratives are. And it seems to have some shifting sands this year. As, as you think about investing, what role does ESG come kind of into your mind, into the universe of what's happening in the investing world? That's a very good question. And you see a lot of false advertising in that space in the sense that people promise that they'll give you not only ESG pure products, but your products with higher returns. Well, that's a pretty good game because what you're telling me is you're going to look at a subset of the assets, not the whole asset space, and you will pick a subset that will be what you can do with the whole asset space. A mathematician laughs at that. Can't possibly be true. You have to do better by considering the whole space than you do just by considering the ESC pure stocks. But my attitude towards it is that's not a decision for firms to make. ESG is a side decision. You've got to decide what you think is legitimate. Society has to decide what it thinks is legitimate and what it thinks is not, and then go forward based on that. Now, still, individual investors could say, no, I'm willing to take lower returns to invest in ESG pure, pure investments. That's fine. As long as you're willing to accept the possibility that your returns are going to be lower as a consequence. Because think of it as supply and demand. If you have more people that are demanding these ESG pure investments, that's going to raise their prices and lower their expected returns. Simple. But I don't think people are very, very clear on that matter. So they want that cake and they want to eat it too. <laughs> yeah, reducing breadth, you know, just by the math of it is makes it makes it a hard equation. I think the most of the ESG crowd is, has the hope that they can get close to the normal returns before. It's where they start marketing as having much better returns. It starts to get a little curious. I'll, uh, I did a poll to summarize kind of what I thought market participants' perspective on ESG was. And I did this with tobacco, Russian stocks, Chinese stocks, and something else. I can't remember which, but it basically said, would you invest in tobacco stocks? You know, And 70% of the respondents said no. And then I waited like an hour or two and I said, would you invest in tobacco stocks if you knew they were going to be at the S&P? A very loaded question, right? Of course. But then everyone said, vast majority said yes. So they didn't really have that religion. They had that religion if it doesn't cost them any money. So I said, uh, ESG, I think, you know, I think the big star caveat is people like it if, as long as it's not costing them anything, which is a hard, a hard subtitle. I wanted to circle back because I, I forgot to ask this, but I think it's important. So on, on the global market portfolio, just portfolios in general, advisors, institutions, individuals, you mentioned a key phrase, which is something along this line of like, you, you invest in this portfolio and then you, you know, you don't mess around with it. Are there any ways to formalize that? One of the benefits of private equity or venture capital, and there's many, many drawbacks is that you're locked in. You can't get out for 10 years, even if you wanted to. Are there any hacks, ideas for kind of how you think about investors should approach these portfolios and behave 
it's kind of like talking about a diet, I understand, but anything that you've kind of thought of over the years to say, look, this is useful. Yeah. So even if I think about the market portfolio, there's new entry all the time into the market portfolio and there are people exiting all the time. So it's not that easy to get the true market portfolio. And then you have stocks and bonds being issued all the time. So the proportions can change uh, a little bit. I think that's really so. That's really second order though, relative to, I can approximate the market portfolio pretty well, but just by getting highly diversified. This is going to be a gene office hours. You ready? This is my new fund idea invention. All right. So we launch a fund. I'm going to call this the forever fund, right? And it's meant to be, okay, you're going to hold this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So really like people say they have a long-term horizon. Let's hold you to it. And so there's going to be a declining penalty and it's going to be heavy. So for the first five or 10 years, let's call it you redeem in year one, it's going to cost you 10% on and on, all the way down to zero. You hold it for 10 years, you're good. So there's there's the stick, right? The deterrent. However, and this will be a low, super low cost global market portfolio fund. However, the reward is all the fees that are acquired from this penalty of selling too soon gets dividended to all the other investors that remain in the fund. Well, how do you like this idea? Is this a thumbs up or thumbs down? The problem is that unravels. That's a game that unravels. In the sense that if I think there's any probability that, that I'll need the money, I won't play the game because that means that some, I'm going to be among the, or possibly among the losers. So that's the kind of thing that unravels. This is my specialty, Gene. It's good ideas that will never raise any money. So, well, I mean, uh, the, only, <laughs> the only ones you're going to get are those who know absolutely for certain that they're not going to take the money out. And who is that? Yeah. The concept would be, all right, you're going to target younger investors, you're going to target investors that are willing to hopefully take advantage of the poor emotional makeup of others. But but I agree with you. Uh, it would need some sort of, I mean, it's an annuity style structure, but the problem with so many annuities are so expensive. So I, I'm not quite there yet. I, I'm still working on the idea, but we're, we'll let you know if we figure it out. If somebody with the best of intentions about staying in there may come up, we have an event, a life event. It forces them to take the money out, and you know, they'll pay a penalty because of that. So that that that'll, that'll end up deterring. I agree on the deterrent. So we'll have to come up with a sexier marketing because I mean, look, man, there's all these closed-in funds and hedge funds that charge two, three percent, and you get locked up forever. So if they if they can raise it on those ideas, maybe we'll just market as magical outperformance. We'll see. Take a lesson from the death of hedge funds, though, right? Yeah. Well, the, the the concept that I was considering, I was like, is there any sort of like private assets like farmland or others you inc- could include in a long-term fund that you couldn't on a short term? But we're working on it. I, I haven't quite figured it out yet. We've got a few more and then I'll certainly let you go. Um, Gene, when was the last time you bought a stock, by the way? You mean individual stock? Yeah. Oof. When I was a really young fellow, I had a broker that was trying to convince me that he could do this. So... I gave him like a year. I, I, I didn't put enough money that I cared about. Uh, and, and I just said, okay, we'll test you out and see how you do it. And of course, he did so poorly. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I know. I know. I am, I am the typical, I am the, the prime candidate for somebody who shouldn't be picking stocks. I have no special information about any individual companies. And I'm not willing to spend the time on it. So... There was a good quote from your 
common co-author and researcher, Professor French, who had a great quote where he said, people are crazy when they try and draw inferences that they do from three, five, or even 10 years on an asset class, which I thought was, you know, in, in a world of very short-termism. But I was going to throw it back to you as I say, Professor, you, who knows, you could have given this this young broker, five, he needed five, 10 years to show his this this could have been just a young Jim Simons. You never know. But <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, wait now. See, I would I would say the fallacy that people make in looking at people like Simon. I'm not saying Simon was one of these people, but the fallacy is you pick them out after the fact, and that's not legitimate. You have to pick them before the fact. You can't take a game in which there are ten thousand people playing and pick out the winners at the end because they were probably just lucky. I was having that conversation with some young angel investors recently about if they could go back and look at the investments they made at the time and predict which ones would be the best performers. And almost to a T, most of them say no. Once you get to the buy decision or uh, uh, invest decision, it's been pretty spread out. Do you have a um, most memorable investment in your career, good, bad, or in between over the years? Is there anything that sticks out for you? I've been involved with Dimensional Fund Advisors since they started. David Booth and Rick Sinkfield were two of my students. And they were unusual to me in the sense that when they started a firm, they thought it might be a good idea to have me involved in it. So that was an unusual experience. That's, that's worked out quite well. Last I checked, they're, what, 400, 500, 600 billion. They just started converting some of their funds to ETFs on the taxable side and has been, have been very successful on it. Right. All right. So as you look forward to the horizon, 2023, what ideas, research, concepts are on Gene's brain? What's got you confused? What's got you excited? What's got you worried? Anything that you're working on that uh, you're pumped up about? Uh, I'm always pumped up about what I'm currently doing. At the moment, I'm working a lot on real estate. So we'll see where that ends up. But it's, it's in the beginning stages. So when you say real estate, are you referring to uh, housing? Are you referring to commercial? Are you referring to... No, I'm referring to the aggregates. I'm trying to explain how real estate fits in with different things that happen in different metropolitan areas and things like that. So it's not a uh, micro perspective. It's more of a macro perspective. Yeah. Well, real estate's interesting because, you know, when you think of diversifying investments in the global market portfolio, real estate often for many individuals is by far their biggest chunk, um, but it's extremely undiversified. I remember Professor Schiller had had some housing funds that came out that weren't successful, but like looking at different markets and trying to hedge and think about investing and in, in diversify that. The the real estate space, I think, is is there's still so much innovation to be had having just gone through a mortgage, my God, what a still antiquated process. I couldn't believe it here in 2022, how bad and how expensive that process was. But there's a lot of innovation going on that I think is pretty thoughtful on on the concept of housing and investing. And real estate is sort of my nightmare. So I, I'm going to put my cards on the table. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that, that you know, if you took the, the housing stock of the country, that's by far the biggest asset. You know, I agree with so. And it's probably the biggest private asset class that's not well represented in the public global market portfolio, right? Would be single housing around the world. Yeah, there's a big uh, agency problem associated with it. So if I own my own house, I take care of it. If I own a share in everybody's house, then nobody has an incentive to take care of it. 
until that probably gets solved, you're not going to see diversification in there. There are some startups that are kind of working on something similar that let you essentially be an owner, but only own a portion of your house and they'll take on, you know, a certain part of the equity with you. There's a lot of obviously costs involved in, in many of those that become problematic, but I, we don't have time today, but I'd love, uh, you had a, we'll link in the show notes, an entire paper on your summary on thoughts on taxes, but I was reading that on some of the ideas you had on property taxes and how you should think about that as a renter and an owner and what concept of a wealth tax there. If we could just like a magic wand use czar of the taxes in the US, what's your proposal? One layer of taxes. Just decide where you want to tax. Do you want to tax firms at the firm level? Or do you want to tax them at the individual level? But don't do both because there's always going to be games being played if you do that. So, Well, so let's nominate you. Which one are you going to go with? The president says, all right, Gene, you got to pick one. Which side are we going to tax? What would be your pick? If you could guarantee it, you wouldn't change it. I would say the simplest system would tax at the firm level. You got one tax return then rather than... This is like a value-added tax style or what is it? Oh, the value-added tax is fine. You have to be careful. You don't want to, you want to leave labor out of the value-added. You want to get in contact among the value-added of, in the value-added of the firm. So you have one level of taxation. You know, you can get around that. But we're never going to get that. Yeah. I have a sort of a yearly tweet where I complain about the amount of time it takes me to do taxes every year. And, and much like Rumsfeld, I say, I can guarantee you there's something wrong with this. I've done my best. But even as a financial professional... It's like so complicated and such a mess that I I'd say, like a boy, I promise I've done my best, but I guarantee you there's something wrong with this tax return because it's just so, so hard to do. Well, you're, you're in California, so that's the place where people want everything and they want the rich people to pay for it. So that's the big problem of democracy is curbing the incentives of the poor to steal from the rich. But then I go see the sunset, Gene, when it's a beautiful 70 degree and it's 10 degrees in Chicago, I can say, okay, well. But that's, that's precisely why they get away with big games over there. Yeah. <laughs> At your home state, there's some pension problems, you know, you guys have historically been known for. So uh, I, I imagine this year's not helping, but we'll see. Gene, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Would love to uh, keep in touch and uh, hopefully do this again. It's a pleasure. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.